theologian writes a critical response to a popular teaching. He destroys it. The teaching and teacher are irredeemably branded as heresy and heretic. Augustine versus Pelagius, the battle of the ages. Today, I read what nobody else wants to read. To find out, was St. Augustine right? Is Pelagianism a heresy? Is Pelagius a heretic? Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review St. Augustine, Four Anti-Pelagian Writings, translated by John Morant and William Collinge. 372 pages published by the Catholic University of America Press in January 1992. It's available in Amazon for $42.24 as of the date of uh, this recording and in Logos for $30.99. Pelagius was not a heretic. The church, in fact, has gotten him wrong. Now, this was news to me. When I first started reading theology, I learned that Pelagius taught that man by nature is able to live completely sinless lives. And I was told that this was heresy. And a man who succeeded in warning us of this heresy and destroying it is a hero of the church. The same man who wrote Confessions and City of God, St. Augustine of Hippo. So I was surprised to hear recently that heretic Pelagius was actually misunderstood and the great man Augustine actually wrote a hit job on him. Now, I have no skin in the game. If Pelagius was truly innocent of the charges, then I will cry out, let justice be done. Let us uh, make his uh, innocence uh, well and truly known. So, I began by reading Pelagius in his own words. I found Pelagius' uh, letter to Demetrius, uh, Demetrius, which is available for free online. And I was shocked. Let me read from that letter. I quote, Nor is there any reason why it is made difficult for us to do good other than that long habit of doing wrong, which has infected us from childhood and corrupted us little by little over many years, and ever after holds us in bondage and slavery to itself, so that it seems somehow to have acquired the force of nature. We now find ourselves being resisted and opposed by all that long period in which we were carelessly instructed, that is, educated in evil, in which we even strove to be evil, since, to add to the other incentives to evil, innocence itself was held to be folly. End quote. So Pelagius does not believe that we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. Rather, he believes that we are copying what we see around us. It's a matter of uh, instruction. It's a matter of education. So Pelagius does not believe in what we know today as original sin, an idea uh, that we have Augustine to thank for. Augustine was right to condemn Pelagianism. That's what I uh, concluded after uh, this uh, letter. Um, so without reading Augustine, <laughs> I really have very strong uh, 
opinions against uh, Pelagianism. And some might say that it's because I have already been corrupted little by little over many years by Augustine. And uh, I concede that the books I read do favor Augustine, um, but I truly believe my convictions uh, come about directly from the Bible. I could leave it as that and uh, leave this discussion as it is, knowing um, what I believe. But since the discussion is on two separate but related questions, the first question was, is Pelagianism a heresy? I believe it is so. Is Pelagius a heretic? Now, again, I believe it's so. But to really properly answer these questions, we should read the man who was instrumental in the condemnation. We should read Augustine's own words, um, and not what other people said he said, and um, to reach a conclusion on how he handled the whole uh, controversy. So to do that, we need the primary source. We need his own writings. So I searched and bought a translation of St. Augustine for anti-Pelagian writings, and I hope to find out answers to a few questions like, what did Augustine understand of Pelagianism? Was he fair in his criticism? Did Augustine respond with biblical truth or philosophical arguments? Or did he just rile up religious fervor? Most, if not all, of these answers to these questions can be found in the first two writings collected in the book. They are The titles are On Nature and Grace and the other title is On the Proceedings of Pelagius. They were written, these two titles were written in a four, uh, 415 uh, to 416 AD, shortly after Pelagius went to court to defend himself. So these are hot off-the-press responses from Augustine on the, on the hot news of the day. The other two writings are shorter and written much later. The titles are On the Predestination of the Saints, and the other one is On the Gift of Perseverance. These were not written to address Pelagianism directly, but they are here because Augustine deals with a related problem. The first thing that struck me when I read this book was how messy everything was. Let me explain. Any good book on systematic theology will say, this is what Augustine believed, this is what Pelagius believed. And if that book had a bit more space to spare, they would quote a sentence, a paragraph from Augustine and or Pelagius, but everything would be very neat and tidy. When you read this book, it's not. It's not neat. It's not tidy. Here you see Augustine trying to get a handle on Pelagius. He constantly asks himself, did he really say what he said? Did he really mean what he said? And you have Christian leaders in that time pestering Augustine to respond to uh, this uh, teaching that is going around, the Pelagius uh, teaching. And we see that Augustine was reluctant to go after the man, but was compelled to go against the teaching. Now listen to this, I quote from the book. The love we have for him, Pelagius, now is different from the love we had for him formerly. 
Then we loved him as one who seemed to be of the true faith, whereas we now love him in order that, by the mercy of God, he may be set free from those antagonistic views which he is said to hold against the grace of God. It was not easy to believe this about him when the rumor began to be circulated some time ago, for rumor is usually a liar. But what brought it home to us and made us believe it was a certain book of his which aims to set forth theories intended to destroy and remove from faithful hearts any belief in the grace of God bestowed on the human race through the one mediator of God and man, Christ Jesus. End quote. So you can see the reluctance and you can see that uh, Augustine has a book, which he, uh, various writings from Pelagius, which he quotes in his uh, responses to him. Now, some have accused Augustine of misrepresenting Pelagius. They say if we only had Pelagius' writings, then we could show how arrogant Augustine has villainized poor Pelagius. And it's kind of true because many of uh, the Pelagius writing did not, um, did not survive. But on the other hand, um, to those people who say that uh, if you only had Pelagius writings, I would, I would respond and say that, have you actually read Augustine? Because I didn't before. And what I read here astounds me. He liberally quotes Pelagius. Augustine tells us that he was once accused of saying things that he did not say, so he does not want the same thing to happen to Pelagius. Over and over again, he gives Pelagius the benefit of the doubt, saying in effect, while it is possible that we have misunderstood him, to the best of our knowledge, what I quote here is what he wrote, and what he wrote should be condemned. So he quotes him often. And since these writings were going around um, and people would be able to correct Augustine if his quotes were wrong or accuse him of um, doing a hit job or misrepresenting uh, Pelagius, the fact was that Pelagius did write these things and he did mean it. Now, what was the thing that Pelagius um, believed or taught that was so controversial? One of, the, one of them was this. Pelagius says that men, uh, men are able to lead sinless lives. Augustine says that men cannot, for all men are born sinners. So that is the, the clash between the two. Now let me read from the middle of an argument, and I hope you can listen to how Augustine interacts with Pelagius. Okay? See, how does he actually interact with Pelagius' words? I quote, he, Pelagius, adds still further, because indeed the possibility of not sinning does not depend upon us, even if we should want not to be able not to sin, we cannot not be able not to sin. He has said this in a convoluted manner, and for this reason somewhat obscurely, but it is possible to put it more clearly as follows. Because the possibility of not sinning does not depend upon us, then, whether we wish it or not, we are able not to sin. For he does not say, 
Whether we wish it or not, we do not sin. Undoubtedly, we do sin if we wish to. Nevertheless, whether we wish it or not, we have, he asserts, the possibility of not sinning, which he says is inherent in our nature. Yet it can be reasonably be said of a man with healthy feet that whether he wish it or not, he has the possibility of walking. But if they are broken, then even if he wishes, he does not have this possibility. Thus, our nature is corrupted, of which it is written, Why is earth and ashes proud? It is corrupted, and it implores the physician, Save me, O Lord, it cries. Heal my soul, it cries. Why does Pelagius block these cries and thus hinder the future health of the soul by defending it as a present possibility? So I'm not sure whether you can, I mean, again, if you're listening to this while doing other things, the front part is not easy to understand. Augustine realizes this and he paraphrases it and he responds to what uh, Pelagius said. So you can see this back and forth. Defenders for Pelagius are quick to remind everyone that Pelagius was cleared of the charges brought against him. So let me say that again. The people accused Pelagius of various heresies. Pelagius went to defend himself before uh, a room full of uh, church leaders. They heard him and they said that he was cleared. Okay? So, one of the things that happened was this, okay? Many things uh, was uh, brought towards uh, Pelagius, but one of them is this. The church leaders asked Pelagius whether man could live sinless lives by the grace of God. Pelagius answered, yes. By the grace of God, yes. And if I can paraphrase Pelagius here, he's saying something like this. I've already said it many times. It is possible to lead a sinless life by the grace of God. Maybe that sinless life has not happened yet, but who are we to deny that possibility? Why do people accuse me of denying the grace of God when I fully affirm it? So when you think about it, some of us may think, well, Pelagius did not make, that's not that big a deal, isn't it? Because if God saw fit to empower through the Holy Spirit a man to lead a sinless life, who are we to deny God? Because it is through the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, on this position, okay, when the church leaders heard Pelagius um, explain himself, they declared him orthodox. His belief is acceptable within the church. Augustine was anguished. He did not blame the council for their decision. They were good people. The problem was they were not familiar with Pelagius' teaching and so they did not ask the right questions. Namely, Pelagius, what do you mean by the grace of God? And this is how Augustine responds to Pelagius, apparently affirming the grace of God. I quote, when I read these words, I confess to you, dear ones, that I was suddenly filled with joy because the author did not deny the grace of God, through which alone a man can be justified. It is such a denial that I detest and dread above all else in controversies of this sort. But 
In continuing to read further, I began to be suspicious at first because of some of the comparisons he presented. For he writes, Now, if I were to say that a man can dispute, a bird can fly, a rabbit can run, and I were not also to mention the means by which these acts can be accomplished, namely the tongue, the wings, and the feet, then have I denied the condition of these activities when I have recognized the activities themselves? It certainly seems as if he has mentioned things which are effective by nature. For these members, namely the tongue, the wings, and the feet, have been created for natures of a particular kind. Nor has he proposed anything that we would want to understand to be of grace, without which no human being is justified. For there the question concerns the healing rather than the formation of natures. From here on, I began to read with misgivings and soon discovered that my suspicions were not unwarranted. So if you're finding it difficult to follow, I'm really not sure how to uh, say this, but uh, it takes effort. And for my case, uh, this is the type of book where I read, then reread, then reread to make sure that I understand what's going on. If you find that I've just insulted you because you think that that was very obvious, it was very clear, Terence, what are you going on about? Then I apologize <laughs> to you in advance. But it, it, some of the sentences can be tricky, but then he does have a very strong uh, point behind it. He's saying that, when, when Pelagius is talking about the, the grace of God, he is not referring to what the Holy Spirit does. What Pelagius is saying about the grace of God is that God created in us a body that is able to overcome sin. So you have the tongue, the wings, and the feet. So these things were created by God, by the grace of God. So it's by the grace of God that we can overcome. God has already given us the means in order to overcome sin. Whereas for Augustine, the grace of God refers to what has happened on the cross. Let me read what Augustine writes. Could a man, or could he not have become just by his own nature and free will? If they say he could have, then see what amounts to rendering the cross of Christ void. To contend that without it, anyone can be justified by the law of nature and the choice of his will. Let us also say here, then Christ died in vain. End quote. Consider this. If a man can be just, if a man can be righteous without Christ, then clearly Christ has died in vain. It would actually be a cosmic joke because the Son of God descended, suffered, and died when he didn't have to. If it was possible to lead a sinless life, then I only needed to try harder and if by doing so, I succeed, surely I can rightly boast that all I needed was the body that God gave me in the beginning, and I have no need for the cross of Christ. This is a religion of works, and it is contrary to the gospel. And yet, despite all the written evidence, despite every misgiving that Augustine has against Pelagius, he is still willing to give Pelagius the benefit of the doubt. Maybe Pelagius did not mean what he wrote. Augustine writes this, For it is the grace of God by Jesus Christ our Lord, the grace by which Pelagius has nowhere been willing to say, We, when we pray, are help so as not to sin. If by chance he implicitly acknowledges this, he must forgive us for having suspected otherwise. 
In that case, it is he himself who is the cause of all the discredit which he suffers on this matter, for he is willing to acknowledge it, yet unwilling to confess or declare it. End quote. You know what this book reminds me of? It reminds me of the drama in some internet forums, especially theological forums. There are some people who are quick to put words in other people's mouths. This is what you just said, this is what you mean, and you're bad for even saying such things. Then you have some people who genuinely try to understand what the other guy is saying, even when it sounds off, it sounds wrong. But he still hopes that it was a misunderstanding. Now that would be Augustine. When you read this book, you don't just learn the proof text and the theological points, which you can easily get from a book of systematic theology. What you get over here is how a theologian or Christian is trying to handle controversies and trying to do it in such a way that there is a way out for the other fella. All right? So you're not trying to demolish the guy. That's not what I get from Augustine's letters here. What I get is a guy who wishes very, very sincerely that Pelagius would see the light, wake up, and change his, his mind or, or he will go towards the right path. So when I read this book, I, you gain more than just reading the, the conclusions or the highlights of the, of the controversy. As I said earlier, there is more to the Pelagian controversy than I can get into in this uh, short review. And there were multiple charges against Pelagius, not just one, but the one I just described was one of the main charges. As you read the book, there are many things familiar and some things foreign. When Augustine writes on the grace of final perseverance, okay, that's one of the writings uh, in this um, 1 out of 4, he expounds, okay? he brings out from the Bible specifically the Lord's Prayer. And he concludes here that people who pray to God by their actions admit God to be sovereign. Now this is very similar to what J.I. Packer presented in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which I just reviewed in episode 87. And in another, another case, um, almost like a side remark, Augustine points out that we believe God puts people in earthly kingdoms. So why should we find it difficult to believe that God puts people in his heavenly kingdom? And John Piper elaborated on this and more in his 800-page book, Providence, which I reviewed a long time ago in episode 7. Now let me share one more a familiar a note from Augustine. And let me read it and let's see whether you can, you can see you have heard it before. Right? So let me quote. Faith, then, both in its beginning and in its completion, is a gift of God. And let it not be doubted by anyone who does not wish to contradict the most evident sacred writings that this gift is given to some, but to others it is not given. Why this gift is not given to all should not disturb the believer, who believes that from one man, all have gone into condemnation, a condemnation undoubtedly most just, so much so that even if no one were freed therefrom, there would be no just complaint against God. End quote. In simple terms, what he's saying is, if God did not save anyone, God would still be just. Now, I'm not saying that Augustine originated these ideas or these phrasings. I would argue that everything I just read is uh, traceable uh, to scripture. The, I'm just trying to point out that the sense of familiarity makes reading this book easier 
and gives the reader confidence to read further and push through some unfamiliar territory. And one of that is uh, baptism. Pelagius Augustine and the early church seem to have a different understanding of what baptism is. Pelagius is quoted in this book to say, Through baptism, the church is purified from every spot and wrinkle. The counsel who was uh, listening to Pelagius defending himself approved of what Pelagius just said. And Augustine? <laughs> he writes, I quote, For who among us denies that the sins of all men have been remitted through baptism, and that all the faithful arise without spot and wrinkle from the bath of regeneration? End quote. Now, because of this, I have to adjust my understanding because they use a different definition of uh, baptism uh, to, to understand uh, some of the points made in this book. And uh, I'll be honest, sometimes I fail to make sense of it, and, uh, but it was not, uh, I was, it's peripheral to the main argument. So I just skip it. Um, and I've learned um, again and again that it's uh, good to uh, make sure that what I don't understand does not prevent me from getting what I do understand. Right, so I mean, if I insisted on understanding everything that I read on the first go, I wouldn't be able to read past Genesis 1 verse 1. Now, with the Bible, we can get help in understanding from commentators. With uh, today's book, Augustine's Anti Pelagian Writings, we get uh, good help from the translators. So, a bit about them there are four writings in this book, okay and each of them has their own introduction. So the translators give us an introduction to each uh, writing, and the translators give us the background, hypnosis, translation issues, and also an appendix. You could jump straight into Augustine's writings, just ignore everything the translators has prepared, and just go into the translated text. Uh, but that would be just like jumping straight into the middle of a TV series. If you, if you really want to understand what's going on, it is helpful to have someone explain who are the characters, what are the motivations behind their actions, and why are they here. Now, before this book, I only knew Pelagius as, well, the heretic. And, but on the other hand, um, the, the translator presents Pelagius in this way. I quote, Pelagius must be understood as primarily a moralist a religious teacher calling for a reform of Christians' lives according to a more demanding standard than that which he perceived to be prevalent, and not as a speculative theologian. Nevertheless, his moral teaching drew on, and perhaps also issued into, a distinctive and fairly well-articulated theological anthropology. End quote. So it's saying that... Uh, Pelagius actually wrote what he wrote because he wanted to push people to be better. And it's something that Augustine actually understood. The problem was that in Pelagius' teaching, he actually ventured into um, theological anthropology means the uh, who man is. So whether man by nature was able to uh, overcome sin or whether man uh, does not have it in him and needs an external force. Uh, it needs a Holy Spirit in order to overcome sin. So Pelagius actually thought uh, and taught that uh, man in his nature was able to. So that is the controversy. So if we have this idea of who Pelagius is, it helps us to understand Augustine's reluctance to go on the attack and also his, uh, I would say, clearly written annoyance in having 
had to do so. He felt a bit forced to have to respond to Pelagius. It also helps explain why Pelagius had written a letter to Pelagius uh, commending him, which uh, Pelagius then later read out, read out in his defense, much to the consternation of Augustine. <laughs> so you can imagine Pelagius coming before his accuser and say, what are the guys going on about? I mean, even the great guy um, Augustine said nice things about me. <laughs> So, uh, and Augustine actually writes a bit uh, in response to that in his writings here. Um, so what I think is that if we really want to uh, understand uh, what is happening in these writings, uh, I mean, it's useful to read the synopsis first, read the translator's notes, so that uh, you can have a mental map of where Augustine is coming from and where he is going. Now, someone may hear me say this and argue I'm letting the translator influence my interpretation of Augustine's writings. I am aware of that danger, but as I said, I found the translator's hypnosis helpful. Otherwise, there were a few times I would be lost. Augustine, what are you going on about? <laughs> and um, to counter that danger of being uh, un uh, unduly uh, influenced, I make a conscious effort to read the text properly, uh, especially when it comes to a very important point. So that's why I'm reading this book and not someone else's write-up of Augustine. So let's go back to where I started this review. Is Pelagianism a heresy? Is Pelagius a heretic? Was Augustine fair in his treatment of the teaching and the teacher? And uh, can the answer to these questions be found in today's book? Yes! That one's an easy one. The answers to these questions can be found in today's book, and anyone who is serious should read this book because uh, no one can have the excuse that this book is too difficult to read. It's harder than what we are used to read uh, nowadays, but it is not inaccessible. You can read it. It's just a question of whether you want to or not. There are some today who wish to see justice done for Pelagius, for they sincerely believe he was wrongly accused of heresy. I commend them uh, for desiring justice. And as I've said before, I have no skin in the game. If Pelagius was innocent, so be it. All right? I'm not going <laughs> to... It's not a hill that I would die on. But reading Pelagius's writing, his letter to Demetrius, reading Augustine's response to him uh, after Pelagius had defended himself in court, I think that there is no redeeming the reputation of this guy. Now consider this, okay? If there is a court and you have a judge and jury and they are doing their jobs, they are sincerely doing their duty to evaluate the evidence and make the right call, the right verdict. And after reviewing the evidence, they find the man guilty. All right? So the man's guilty and he's sentenced to whatever punishment that he deserves. However, later, much later, people raise doubts on the verdict. It happens every, not every day, it happens often, okay? And in some cases, what, what, do we, what happens? There is uh, new evidence, new DNA, uh, there is new, I don't know, new uh, CCTVs or new whatever it is, and they say that, hey, we need to review the case. Maybe there was a mistake. And if there was a miscarriage of justice, let justice prevail, though delayed. And we see that 
There are some people who were imprisoned from something they were falsely accused of, and then they were released, and everybody says, wow, he was wrongly accused for 20 years in prison, and now he's out, and great. Bad for the guy, but great in the end, because we know what is true. Now, just because it, those ideas are prevalent, uh, and, and it happens uh, quite often nowadays, it does not mean that it's always true. There are people who wish to overturn the verdict, but you cannot ignore the original witnesses to the case and turn to rely on what other people heard from the witnesses. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the case against Pelagius, Augustine recorded Pelagius' own words, and Pelagius' own words bear witness against him. So we cannot how do I say? We cannot listen to some guy from a seminary or professor or wherever it is and say that, you know what? You know what? Actually, Pelagius, Pelagius got the short end of the stick. Actually, he was not that bad a guy. The thing is that we should not, we can hear what he's saying and then we can go back to the main source and see whether what he said was true. And the thing is, if Pelagianism is accepted, then Augustine's conclusion is still valid. Christ died in vain. And I would say here that anyone who accepts Pelagianism also shares in Pelagius' condemnation, which is, he was a heretic. Am I being too harsh here? I don't enjoy calling people heretics. Neither does Augustine. But heretics, it just means that whatever they are teaching, it is contrary to what is straight and true. Understand that uh, you may not be particularly motivated like I was to read Augustine's anti-Pelagian writings. But if you would like to have a start on Augustine, then uh, I recommend Confessions or City of God. I haven't read them yet. They are in my bucket list. Um, but from what I can tell from this uh, book, um, Augustine is definitely one worth reading. He has a mind um, that is really worth just um, reading it through and being able to engage with this uh, great scholar. Now, before I end this review, let me read the concluding paragraph in on the predestination of the saints. Okay, So Augustine writes this as the final paragraph of this particular writing. I quote, Therefore, we undertook as far as we could to show that even this very beginning of faith is a gift of God. And if we have done this at greater length than might have been desired by those for whom it was written, we are ready to be reproached by them for it, provided that they never, nevertheless will admit that, even if at much greater length than they would like, even at the cost of boredom and weariness, on the part of those who understand, we have accomplished what we set out to do. That is, have shown that even the beginning of faith, like continence, patience, justice, piety, and other things of which there is no dispute with our brothers, is a gift of God. Therefore, let us conclude this volume, that too great a length of one book may not be displeasing to the reader." End quote. I laughed out loud when I read this paragraph, for isn't that every writer's hope? That too great a length of one book may not be displeasing to the reader. 
This is a Reading and Readers Review of St. Augustine, four anti-Pelagian writings translated by John Morant and William Collinge, 372 pages published by the Catholic University of America Press in January 1992. It's available in Amazon for $42.24 and in Logos for $30.99. So thank you for listening. Bye-bye.